Welcome back to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chloe Rogers, and I'm the Digital Engagement Director here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're continuing our series, Masterclass, where we're considering how we can apply the stories of Jesus's earthly ministry to our own lives. As we head into chapter three of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see what it means to be a part of the family of believers. Following Jesus brings unity among God's people. So let's listen in now and hear more about Jesus's teachings. Man, we are glad again that you're here this morning. I'm super excited to be able to worship with you and open up God's word with you. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and open up to, totally forgot how to open this thing. Um, I don't know to remember the number. There we go. Hey, that's it. Um, so uh, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter three. You know, we've been, we started a series just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago to be exact, uh, in the book of Mark. Where we're gonna work through all 16 chapters of the book of Mark. If you've been reading along with us in our um, daily steps, if you don't have a copy of Daily Steps, you can get it on the app, on the Rolling Hills app. It's also, there's a paper copy at the Next Steps table. I encourage you to grab that. Every week as, uh, as we lead up to the this, this Sunday, we read through, the book that we're going to be teaching on. So uh, you'll be able to kind of know a little bit about where we're going. And some weeks we'll, we'll really dive in to, to one particular passage in the, in the book. And then uh, as you're reading, you'll see the full passage. This week, we're going to work through the whole chapter. Uh, start to finish, we're going to work through 35 verses. You were like, I thought I was going to get out early on Mother's Day, but that ain't the case. Uh, we, I'm just joking. Um, I mean, I hope I'm joking. The... Um, but we're gonna work through this whole chapter, kind of a, an overview of it. And, and really from the beginning to the end, what we'll see in, in Mark chapter three is that, that what, what Mark does is that he moves from conflict. If you have your worship guides, you can fill this out. This is the first note there on it, that he moves from conflict with the religious, religious Pharisees to clarity on what it really means to be a part of the family of God, from conflict to clarity on what it means to be a part of the family of faith. And since we're gonna tackle this whole passage for all 35 verses as we move through it, uh, I won't just go ahead and pray and then we'll jump right in. So pray with me. Jesus, we thank you again, uh, as we've said it already, we thank you for today. We thank you to be able to come and gather and open up your words and, or your word and sing songs about you. And God, we pray again, Father, I pray what we, what we said from the very beginning that we believe that you, as we lift you up in song and that we lift up you as we open up your word, that you'll draw men to yourself. You'll draw men and women to yourself. And we pray that that happens this morning. I pray that clearly, Father, we would move from, from conflict and confusion to clarity as to what it means to be a part of the faith, part of the family of faith, the family of God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So from conflict to clarity, and it's really a, a, the best way to kind of put it is I, I think that there's really five scenes, and just to, to kind of use that language, five scenes in the book of in Mark chapter 3. And the first scene is uh, the scene, or the best way to kind of describe it is that there's conflict. The first six verses, there's conflict. And this is a really kind of a, a carryover from chapter two. Uh, as you kind of work through, you remember last week, we kind of focused in on the first 12 verses there. If you keep reading in chapter two, what you see there is that, that Jesus continues to have conflict with the Pharisees. And there's conflict because he eats with the, the tax collectors and sinners. And there's some conflict because he does some other things. And then there's conflict over the Sabbath. Is, is kind of the ending of chapter two. And then the beginning of chapter three, there's another conflict over the Sabbath. 
Sabbath. So he's just in conflict with, with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And this, where we pick up in, in verse one, the first six verses, kind of is this second conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. And we'll start reading in verse one. It says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and the man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Can you imagine what it's like to have people just watching you all the time? I mean, it just would be ridiculous. I would lose it. That's why I wasn't Jesus, period, right? There's other reasons too, right? There's other reasons. That was a stupid statement. Can we scratch that from the recording? So verse three, says, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill it, but they remained silent. So Mark intentionally in these, in these verses and in, in the end of chapter, in chapter two and then in the first part of chapter three, he's kind of highlighting these ongoing conflicts. And Jesus is this really upstart rabbi, this teacher that's kind of gaining this following through as he travels through the Galilean countryside, right? And and these guys are upset with him. He seems to say things that are controversial. He's doing things that are unconventional and there's tension because of it. And this conflict that he has here, we said a second ago, is it's centered on the Sabbath. And in essence, in essence, there's these last two conflicts of what he's saying is that the Sabbath as a gift to God's people. It's not a weight. It's not a, it's not a hammer to be weighed down or to beat people over the head. What he's, he's saying is, hey, God gave this pattern, this six days of work and a seventh day of rest as a, as a way to live life the way that God designed it to live, a way to have life, a full life. And this was the, the reason why he gave the Sabbath. But not only is it the Sabbath that he's kind of uncovering as, a, as this gift that he gives, he's saying the whole thing, that the whole law that God gives to his people it's not a hammer. It's not a weight. It's meant to point us to him. It was meant, it was a good gift to his people, a good gift from God to his people to teach them, to point them to God, to teach them what it means to love him, what it means to love others and how to live the life that he's called us to live. But what the Pharisees has done, had done is they'd made it a chore. That's not what God designed it to be. And he was addressing these guys to say, the way that you've seen this, the way that you're operating, the way that you're moving, the way that you're teaching, it's not what God designed it. And, and, you know, you realize that there's conflict here. And and in context, you, you and I read this on the other side of Jesus having conflict with the Pharisees where we see that they were wrong. But the people that are there listening to this, this is new for them. Conflict with the Pharisees was not something that they would have seen before Jesus very often because the, these guys were the good guys. These were the guys who, who lived the good life. I mean, what people saw of them was that these were the religious, these were the good dudes. And, and what one pastor says it this way, that these were genuine believers in God. They were concerned about spiritual renewal of their people. They wanted to see the spiritual renewal. Renewal, I can't say that word. They were were honorable men. They were eagerly looking for and diligently praying for the kingdom of God to come. And so that's Jesus. That's the conflict that Jesus is having with people that outwardly they, they looked like they were the people that everybody wanted to be. But he was saying, hey, listen, the way that you're operating, the things that you're doing, you're missing the point. They missed it. 
And Jesus in his actions and what he does, even healing this man on the Sabbath day, he's not violating the law that God gives him or God had given his people because that would have made him a sinner and he can't be a sinner, right? But what he's doing is he's violating these extra biblical, these traditions that the Pharisees had added to the law that made it a weight to the people that they could never accomplish. That it was just so much that they had laid on side, on, on, on top of the law. Their traditions, these additional rules that they were missing the point. And he gave them these things to teach them what it meant to love and to walk and follow him. And there's a warning here for all of us. As Jesus has this conflict with the Pharisees, is that he, he tells them really that, that the way that they're operating, he tells, what he's telling us is that the way that they operate is really no different than some of us operate. Right, because we've built our whole, our whole lives have been built on the things that we do. You know, because their whole confidence in their, in their relationship with God and their, and their standing before God was the fact that they had followed the rules, that they had done all the right things. But what Jesus is saying is that you're, you're missing the point in trying to do all the right things. It's the, the right things are supposed to lead you to relationship with God, and this is keeping you from it. So many of us, I know that this is my story in so many ways, that my relationship with Christ, my faith in Jesus, or my faith, my, my relationship, my, my standing before God had always been built on the things that I did or didn't do. It had been, it'd been built on, the, on my church attendance, on reading my utmost for his highest, or, or what little bits of pa- passages a couple times a week. It had been built on praying before I eat and going to sleep, especially in high school when I prayed at the, at the cafeteria table. Like, that was a big deal, right? I was, ob- God, I, I was obviously in good relationship with God because at high school, a, a, a secular high school, I'd pray. I mean, Jesus really loves me then, Right? It was all built on the things that I had done or the things that I had stayed away from. And what he does in this moment, what, he, what he's telling these guys and, and, and what he's telling us is that it, the Christian life is not about the rules that you follow. It's about a relationship with the Savior. The, the things that we do at, at, in, in response, we are obedient in response to. We're not, in, we're, we're not obedient to earn God's favor. We're obedient in response to the favor that he's given us. So the Pharisees, they reject this relationship in favor of their rules. And it leads Jesus to an intense anger is what it says here in verse 5. It says, he looked, this is Jesus, looked around at them in anger deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they would kill him. First, Jesus' anger was not sinful. It was this disdain for the fact that their hearts were hard and cold and they were missing the point. He was angry at them because they they were leading his people away in their hardness of heart. They were trapped in a lie. The second reason, the second thing that I wanna make sure we see is that Jesus was deeply in distress over this hardened heart. That there was compassion and there's, as he has this conversation with them, he wants nothing less than for them to know the saving, this relationship that he's come to offer. He wants them to realize that the way that they're seeing it is wrong, that that they're being invited into a relationship with him. And maybe the same thing is the truth for some of us today, that we're trapped in this idea that everything rests on our goodness. 
And if that's where we find ourselves, then we're in conflict with the Christ of the Bible. Maybe you find yourself in that same place today, and I, and I pray that this morning that you would hear Christ's compassion and that you would hear this good news that it has never and will never rest on you and your goodness or your, your, the failures that you've had in the past that you think keep you now from a relationship with him. It's never rested on that, not even once. And he goes from there. The second kind of scene that we see in this passage is he, in, in chapter 3, verses, verse 7 through 12, is that he moves to the crowd. So there's conflict with the Pharisees, and he moves to the crowd. In verse 7, it says this, And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem, in media, in a medium, I can't say that word either, in the, in the regions across the Jordan and Tyre and Sidon. And because all the crowds... And because of, the, all the, because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. And so he healed many so that those who were diseased were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you're the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. A couple of things from this scene that I think is pretty interesting. First, that Jesus was crowded and crushed. Right, here's something, here's a Mother's Day sermon right here. Moms, Jesus knows what it feels like to have somebody always wanting something from you. It's right here, right? Crowded, this, this, is, this is for you. He says this for you. Clearly, Jesus knows what it means to feel like you're being pressured, you're being pressed in, that everything is closing in around you, that you're about to be crushed. And his solution was to get a boat. So that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, Rebecca. I got this outside. We got a boat. It's a joke. I didn't buy a boat. That would be stupid. But he knows, moms. I, I, and I, I, like, I, I hope that you hear that because I do believe that that is so, because uh, I know that, that it happens in my house. And I hope that he knows what it feels like to have somebody always wanting something from you. We'll keep going. There's a couple other things that he withdrew. Right, it says that he withdrew, and, and, and he, said he moves from the city, from the synagogues, and he goes out to the lake. Now, here's what I want, what I want us to hear first, is that what he's saying, that these people are coming from all these different places, and ultimately what he's saying is they're coming from everywhere, north, south, east, west. People are hearing about Jesus, and they're coming to check Jesus out. They're attracted to what's happening. They want to know what's going on, and so they come from all over the place. And Jesus retreats, or he goes, he withdraws to the lake, but that's not a retreating out of fear. He's not hiding from these guys that he has a conflict with. He continues to courageously declare the good news of the kingdom that he declared in the, in the synagogues that had guys plotting to kill him. He's continuing to do that. So he's not running in fear. But what happens here, what it does happen is that this, in, in verse 7, really does mark a change that moves through the rest of the book of Mark. That Jesus moves away from the center of where religious things happen and he goes outside the cities, outside the synagogues. He goes to the places where, the, where, where it's the ordinary people come to, to, to meet him. Because those who are the insiders, the, the religious people, they've rejected him. And so he goes out to the outskirts. And those who are the outsiders are the ones that are coming to him. And we see a difference because here in the book of Mark and throughout the rest of the chapters, the outsiders become the insiders. 
They're the ones who are having this close contact with him. But those who are on the inside, or in, those who are on the inside, begin to see and operate from the outside. It's an interesting switch that happens here. That Jesus begins to spend time, the greatest amount of amount of his time, with those people who were considered outsiders, as the religious elite begin to look from the outside inside. The third thing I think from this little section is that it's bigger than a crowd. I I think what's interesting is that in any, any industry in our world, what's happening right here would be considered a success. The crowd is forming. I mean, people are coming. Everybody, I mean, the, the Pharisees are mad about it because they're, he's gaining a following. If you read in other places, they're upset because people are following Jesus. The crowds that used to come to them are going to him. They're upset, so they see this as success. Our world would see this as success. It's, it's a crowd. They're, everybody's there. But Jesus doesn't see this as the success. It's what informs even the reason why I, like what happens here is that I love growth to happen, but I don't see growth as the success if, if relationship's not what's happening under all of that. Relationship with Christ ultimately, but relationship with each other. See, because the crowds, are, they're, they're curious, but they're casual observers. They've come to see the sights. They want to see, they're attracted to what's happening, but they're not committed to Jesus. They're not attached to Jesus. They know something significant has happened, but they're really not sure who Jesus is. The crowd was not the success. The sad reality of what happens here is that there are, out of all of the people that are there, that are seeing Jesus do what Jesus does, there's only one, one, group, of, one group that understands who he is, and it's the evil spirits that he is casting out. The crowd doesn't even really understand who he is. The Pharisees are missing it, but those guys know exactly who he is. And even in that moment, when he gives those instructions, they have to listen to him. He, they have to listen to what he says and don't tell anyone. They're clear that, that they listen. They know who he is, even though everybody else is missing it. The third, third scene that we move to in verse 13 through 19 is the called. From the crowd, we move to the called. And this verse 13 says, Jesus went up to the mountainside and he called to, to him those he wanted And they came to him. That's important. We'll come back to that in a second. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. And the 12 apostles, the 12 that he appointed, excuse me, were Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave some name that it may say in some other language, but that means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Golly, it's just not great today. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this great crowd follows him. But they're, they're from a distance. They're curious observers. They're, they're not really, they're, they're casually kind of following. They want to see, the, the, see the show. They wanna, they're interested in what's happening. But, but what he does in the midst of all of the success is that he pulls back to the mountainside and he calls 12. Crowds, I'm talking, they estimate thousands upon thousands of people are following him. 
And he pulls back and he gets 12 to come and spend some time with him. It's counterintuitive to the nth degree. But Jesus moves from the crowd who are curious and casual observers to those who are called and who are committed to him. The question that I would say as we think about it is, is what makes someone move from attracted to Jesus or the things of Jesus to a committed follower of Jesus? And there's a lot, I think there's a lot that I, that, that I would have to kind of process through, but there's, in the simplest way we see in the passage, the first is that God called, that Christ calls you. That Christ initiates the relationship. He's the one, the great crowd is there, but Jesus calls 12 to come to himself. And many of you in the room, many of you who are here this morning, you know that that calling, you've experienced that Jesus has called you to himself, that, that you've felt that reality that you're a sinner in need of a savior and you've sensed Christ saying, I'm that savior and you've responded to that call and you've put your faith in Jesus and you would be among those who were called. For some of you, you know that you are a sinner and you've rejected that call time and time again. You've said, no, I, I'm, I'm still not sure. I'm still, I'm still just trying to figure out what's going on. I'm still, I don't think I'm ready yet. But the response, the first Christ calls, what, what moves us from attracted to actually giving our lives to Jesus, that Christ initiates the conversation. And what it says in the passage in verse 13, he calls them those who he wanted and they came to him. What, what we do is that we humbly we humbly come to him and put our faith in him. That we repent of our sin and our rebellion and we put our faith in Jesus. What these 12 men did is that they came to him when he called. And we moved from attracted to Jesus and the things of Jesus to being in a relationship with him. When he calls us, he initiates us, initiates the conversation. We humbly come to him and we're with him in relationship and available to him to be sent by him. One of the things that I can't get over in, as you read this passage, and I'm gonna spend a whole lot of time on this, but I think it's where a lot of us find ourselves in that casual observer where we don't really wanna step into that called place yet where we're like, I know that, gee, I know that there's something about this that draws me to, I know that God's initiated the conversation, but I'm not ready. It's because these 12 guys that he calls are a bunch of knuckleheads. And I don't mean that to be offensive. I don't mean that to be disrespectful to them because one day I'm hoping that I'll get to meet them and I'll be like, no, they're gonna be like knuckleheads, huh? And I'm gonna put my head in a toilet and sh you know, flush it or something. What I mean is that they didn't have it all together. I mean, just if you turn just one chapter, they're confused as all, they don't get it. They, they don't get it, and, and throughout the Gospels, they don't get it. They're not, they're, they're not together. They're, they're teachable, but they're not together. They don't have it all figured out. They're just as confused as the rest of us. The older I get, the more I realize that people who think that they know or think that they have it all figured out are just as confused as the rest of us. Some of us are casual observers and we're curious about Christ and when Jesus is calling us, but we're not ready to take that next step. We're not ready to commit our lives to him because we have this idea that we have to get it all together first. And I'm telling you that that was never the way that God arranged it. It wasn't the arrangement that Jesus had. 
Remember, ultimately, the guys who thought they had it all together are the ones that rejected him. These guys were ready, they were teachable. They weren't together. Jesus knows you, he knows all about you, he knows all of the things that are just frazzled in your life and he's, he loves you even though he knows all of those things. He wants a relationship with you, not because, not a future version of you, he wants a relationship with you today. He's calling you to himself today, who you are today. Not the person that you inspire to be because he loves you, all the mess all the brokenness, he loves you. And he wants you to be with him because in that place you'll find hope and healing for all the brokenness that you know in your life. It wasn't that they were together, it was that they were teachable. And then we go from that called and we kind of, what, Paul, what, what Mark does a lot is he kind of sandwiches inside of this or he moves back and forth to kind of make some, some comparisons. And then verse 20 through 30, there's the confused this is kind of the fourth scene in this move is that they're confused. And, and, and what it says in Mark, uh, verse, beginning in verse 20, it says this, then Jesus entered a house and again, the crowd gathered. So this is, he's moved away from the shore, from, from, the, from the, the Sea of Galilee. He's moved back into the house. More, more than likely, it's Peter's mother, mother-in-law's house there in Capernaum. And so he goes back into the house and, and, and then a crowd gathers again. And so the disciples, so that he and the disciples were not even able to eat and when Jesus heard about this, they went and went, excuse me, excuse me, golly, this is horrible. I'm gonna have to have a surrogate reader. When Jesus, that was dumb. When Jesus' family heard about it, they went to take charge of him. They were going to get him because they said he was out of his mind. Literally, Jesus' family, Jesus' mom and her, his brothers, they go to get him because they think he's out of his mind, that he's deranged or insane. And if that's not enough, here come the Pharisees. They think he's demon-possessed. Verse 22, the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem, these are the big, big wigs, they come from Jerusalem and they say he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demon, demons, and he drives out, by that he drives out demons. And so Jesus calls them over and he begins to speak to them in parables. Pause here for a second. This is the very beginning of Jesus in the book of Mark speaking to them in parables. And from then on, he's gonna teach in parables. And we're gonna talk about that next week a little more, why he uses parables and how he uses and how we read those things. So we're, I'm not gonna spend any time on that today, but we'll, we'll get to that next week and in the future. But right now, what, what you can almost hear as you jump back into verse 23 is Jesus kind of scratching his head, looking at these Pharisees in this bewildered look with this tone, this dumbfounded tone in his voice saying, saying these words, how can Satan drive out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He says this three times. If the house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Second time. And, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So he's just, guys, this argument that you have is so not a good one. Verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Three, three things, just really quick, I don't think we need to cover here. One, that Jesus knows what it looks like to have a family that's messed up. He knows what it's looked like to have a family that's messed up. 
that, that, that's confused about, that, that, that rejects him or has problems with him walking in obedience to the Father. He knows what it's like to have a family that that that's, doesn't understand why he's living the way he's living. And some of you live that life, that you have trusted Christ and you're walking with Jesus and your family doesn't understand it. He knows what that looks like. They came to get him because they thought he was crazy. Jesus knows what it looks like. Second thing is that under, misunderstanding Jesus can take you on wild tangents far away from reality and leave you hopeless. You see, what happens for both of these, this family and the Pharisees, is that they misunderstand who he is and it takes them on these crazy tangents that he's gotta be insane or possessed by a demon. And, and, and can you think, I mean, like they've gotta explain why he's living this way and they're, they're misunderstanding who he is and it takes them down this irrational re, rational road where their reasoning just doesn't make sense. I mean, countless religions are built on this misunderstanding and how they've tried to explain who Jesus is. Whole religions are, are, are built on this misunderstanding. Like, but, but scripture tells us who he is that he's the son of God. He was sent by a loving father to give us life, to rescue us from our rebellion, to give us life, that he's not crazy. He's Christ, the son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, the lamb of God that was sent to take away the sins of the world, that he's not Beelzebub, the prince of demons, but he's the prince of peace, that he's not come to be an ally of the enemy, but to conquer him. Misunderstanding leads us down a road that's hopeless. It leaves us confused. While the road to hope, while the road to, to life and clarity that we all seek is found in trusting Jesus as a Messiah. There's the last thing in this passage, verse 28 through 30, that, that I think is pivotal for us to understand. It's one of those that's a hard teaching, but I, I, I can't, I can't not go through it, right? I can't skip it and in good conscience like act like it wasn't there. Verse 28, it says this, truly I tell you, this is Jesus telling, people can, people can be forgiven. This is after the Pharisees have talked about him being possessed by demons, right? People can be forgiven of all their sins, even slander, even the slander they utter. Here's the wonderful truth of beginning that Jesus says that we can be forgiven of our sins. Hold on to that, but there's also a warning Verse 29, it says, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this to them because they were saying that he has an impure spirit. It's a frightening passage. It's, it's one of the hard sayings of Jesus. We can't skip over it. Because what he says is really, it, it, it should be terrifying. And, and I don't, I'm not gonna spend a great deal of time on it, but I believe that, that there's a clear way to address what happens here. And one, the one pastor that I, that I read a fair amount and have become, or have grown to greatly admire and trust over the past decade or so, a guy named Ray Stedman says this. He says, some have concluded from this word, from what he says, that the pardon for sin is suggest, or the un unpardonable sin is suggesting that Jesus has an unclean spirit or works of God are really the works of the devil. But it's important to notice that certain things are happening in this account, certain things that are happening in this account. Notice that these men have not yet committed the unpardonable sin. When Jesus said to them, or when they said Jesus has an unclean spirit, they were close, they were on the verge of it, but they had not yet committed the sin. Otherwise, Jesus would have never warned them. Why warn them? 
right? Why warn them if they've already committed the sin? So what is the warning? So follow me here. This is what he says. That the Holy Spirit's work throughout Scripture is this, to exalt and declare and to define the work of Jesus. And so rejecting the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what he says here, is to reject the Holy Spirit's witness of Christ. The Holy Spirit's communicating to us who Christ is and drawing us to himself. And so the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit of Christ. That is what it means for men. That, that is what these men were close to doing. Therefore, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is rejecting Christ because Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse six, no one can come to the Father but by me. And so to reject Jesus leaves us with no hope. There's no grounds of forgiveness of sins in rejecting Jesus because forgiveness is always found in trusting and putting our faith in Jesus. It's not a single act of rejection which is in this view. It's a process of a heart that, it, that is resistant and rejects the claims of Christ over and over, set forth by the Holy Spirit. And the result is that there can be no forgiveness. It was a long quote, but here, here's, it's the process of us saying no, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and drawing us to himself and us rejecting that work of us turning our hearts away and thinking I've got to get my stuff together of thinking that it's based on all the things that I do of thinking that Jesus could never love me of just saying I'm not ready and this what Ray Sedman says is that it's a process but here's what I also want us to hear and this is a truth that we cannot pass up is that you don't know when the last time you're going to get to reject it is it may only be once but you certainly don't know the last moment. And so today, if the Lord is drawing, himself, drawing you to himself, if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to draw you to himself, you cannot pass that moment up. You cannot reject him. He's calling you to himself because truly there is a point when there is no more hope. There is no more opportunity for you to have forgiveness of your sins. And the, the, the final of that is that there is a total separation for eternity from him. And if that doesn't scare you, it should. If it doesn't terrify you, it should. but he's calling you. And so the response is there for us. We have run out of time, so I'm gonna do this last. Last thing that we see is that there's clarity. And I know that it's difficult to see this here because what happens in these five verses is a little weird, but he says that Jesus, it says that Jesus' mother and brothers, so this is Mary and all of his brothers. If you didn't know he had brothers, they're, they're here. James, who wrote the book of James, is one of Jesus' brother. He stands outside. They're standing outside, and someone calls him, and the crowd is sitting around him. And he says, your mother and brother are here. They're looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and brother? And he looks around him, those that are seated in the circle, and he says, here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So first, Jesus is not taking a pot shot at his family for calling him crazy. That's what I would have done, but that's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is he tells us, he's teaching us, and this is such a profound truth. He's teaching us that there's a deeper kinship, a deeper family than flesh and blood. 
that there's a spiritual family that we enter into through faith in Jesus that's characterized by being with Jesus. That's what he says, he looks around at the people that are there with him, that those who are there with him, these are my mother and my brother. And that what that's characterized, it's, it's the spiritual family that's with him and it's characterized by being obedient to him. When Jesus is saying that there's a new family that's stronger, that's deeper, that's more satisfying, and this could not have been more shocking to the people that would have heard him. Of a, of a Hebrew culture, it could not have been more shocking. But it's essential that what he says is that it's not about your family or physical connections. It's not about racial or cultural backgrounds. Ultimately, it's about this family. It's about being in relationship with the Father. And here's what I want us to hear before we close. That being a part of the family of God doesn't happen because you're interested in Jesus. It doesn't happen because you're a casual observer. It happens because you've put your faith in him. Lots of people pressed in, they were healed, but salvation happens when we put our faith in him. Being a part of the family of God doesn't, isn't passed down from previous generations. It's a personal decision that you make. And being a part of the family of God doesn't make life easier but it does ease our worry and fears in knowing that our Father is eternally loving and good and eternally faithful to his children. So as we close, these three questions are questions that I want you to think about as we, as we finish up this morning. You have this response. The question of where, where are you? Where am I? Are you in conflict? Are you part of the crowd? You're casually observing? Are you confused about who Jesus is? Are you a part of those that have been called by him? You've come to him and you're with him. Are you clear on what it means to be in the family of God? You trusted the father. So who are you? Are you an outsider? Those who are truly on the outside and don't have a relationship with with Christ? Are you on those who were once outside, but you're inside? There's really only two people. You're either with Christ and, and in relationship with him, or you're not in relationship with him. And, and he's calling you to that. Are you a child of God? Are you in the family of God? Who, who are you? And I would say, what is your next step? We say it all the time. What is, what's, what's my next step? What is your next step? And for those of you who, who do have a relationship with Jesus, your next step is truly what it says in John chapter 15, to abide in him, to, to rejoice in your identity, to rejoice and give thanks for what he's done, to, to step in, to intentionally participate in life. That's what he says, that here's those who do the will of the Father, right? That you're walking in obedience, that you're living in community with other believers, that you're serving, that you're doing the things that the people of God do, the practices of the people of God, that but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, this morning, your next step is to respond to that invitation. To abandon that thought that it, it's after you get it all together because it's, you're never gonna get it all together. And the day that you think that you have it all together, then you'll actually reject him because that's the day that you don't think you need him. But we're all in desperate need of him. And so as Greg comes, we're just gonna sing a song of response. And really, I, I, 
you respond however you want to. You can stand as, as we sing. You can stay seated. But really what I want you to do is respond. I, I'm, I'm, I don't do very often. I don't do altar calls. I, I'm not saying I never do them, but I, I don't very often. And we're not going to have a moment where you come down here this morning. But I'll be sitting here, and if, if you do want to have a conversation about what it means to take that next step in following Jesus and putting your faith in Jesus, I'd love to start that conversation. If you think, I can't walk up and talk to you while we're singing, that's fine. I'll be out by the next steps table after we're finished. But decide in your heart right now how you're going to respond. As we sing this song, how are you going to respond to the call that Jesus sang Come to me. Because his disciples did. They came to him. And those who were sitting around him were with him. And he said, this is my family. He's invited you into that family. So if you want to respond to that, we'll start that today. Don't let this day pass. Don't reject the Holy Spirit's movement today to call you to himself. So let's sing. And then you respond. And we'll come back up and close in just a moment. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're glad you spent some time with us today. Have a great week.